Thank you for listening to Christian Challenge at K-State's podcast. If you'd like to learn more about our ministry, follow us on Instagram or visit our website. Hope you enjoy this episode. Good morning. I hope you had uh, a better night's sleep than I did. Of course, the whole, you know, you, you come to a new place and it takes you a while to get used to, to your new surroundings, but here we are. And I want to welcome you to our session this morning. I told you last night we would be speaking about beauty in a broken world. And this morning, I want to think about the, the last part of that, a broken world. And um, the title of this message is, Where is the Beauty, the Vanity of Life Under the Sun? Can we see beauty? Can we find beauty in this broken world? And a question I want to start with this morning is, what do you do when life doesn't make sense? How do you respond? How do you respond to the brokenness that you see around you? The injustice, the unfairness, the inconsistencies, the marginalization, the hatred, all the stuff that you guys see on college campuses, all the things that you see on social media, how do you make sense of it all, all that around you, but then let's make it a little more personal, how about closer to home, what do you do with your own pain, what do you do with your own disappointments, your own frustrations, your own hurt, your own fear, the perplexity of life. Faded dreams, do you have hopes in your young years that have already died? Or maybe you've had a charmed life, maybe life has been great and it still isn't satisfying. And what you thought you would feel or what you would have right now in this season is missing and it's empty, you're disillusioned, you're disappointed. Maybe you've pursued pleasure and you've found that it's just empty. I don't know if you were paying attention to the stories that you heard last night in the family groups. And the question was, where am I? Where does God have me right now? And uh, the group that I was in, it was amazing to hear of everything that I just said. The, the heartache, the frustrations, the disappointments, and the challenges of life. And so the question this morning is, where is the beauty? And you just saying that you want the gift. You want more than the gift, you want the giver. Is that true for you? That no matter what happens in this world, whatever happens in this life, that you want the giver more than the stuff, more than those things that we would call good things. I want you to turn your Bibles this morning to the book of Ecclesiastes. Book of Ecclesiastes, if you go to Psalms and then just flip over a few more pages, Proverbs, and then you'll get to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Ecclesiastes is a book for our days. It's ancient Hebrew literature, wisdom literature, but I think it captures what we want to talk about. I believe it was written by King Solomon. And uh, it is something that helps us as we think of a world of pandemics and polemics and politics and unrest and injustice and meaningless work, or so it would seem. 
or maybe, maybe meaningless schoolwork, right? Classwork. What is this that I have to do? As you see, look at chapter 1, verse 13. King Solomon would say at the very beginning of this whole book, I have applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. This is wisdom literature. Seeks to understand the question, how do I live rightly before God? How should I live life correctly, righteously before God? God. And we know from other wisdom literature, from Proverbs, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so if we want a heart of wisdom this morning, a heart of wisdom this week, we begin with a right understanding and a proper orientation to who God is. A fear of the Lord. True wisdom presupposes that a right relationship to God is the only path to true wisdom. And so, that's my prayer, that we would have a heart of wisdom as we seek to see what God is saying to us, and we ask the question, where is the beauty? So, I want to read with you chapter 1, just a quick survey as we begin to see Solomon basically asking that same question. Can I find beauty in this world? Verse 1, the Words of the preacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem. And this is the classic verse 2. You might be familiar. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down. Hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and it goes to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuit the wind returns. All the streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything with which it can be said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to come or yet to be among those who come after him. Do you, do you hear what Solomon is saying? It's like somebody's pushed the repeat button. And it just keeps repeating. There's this cycle. There's this repetitiveness to life. There's this, it's mundane. I keep doing the same things. I go to class I walk the same route, drive the same route, go to the same, sit in the same chair. Life is repetitive. There's this constant movement. The streams run, the sun moves, the wind blows. There's this constant movement, but nothing ever arrives. There's no gain. That's what he's asking in verse 3. What does a man gain? There's no advantage, it would seem. There's nothing new, never filling or ultimately fulfilling can there be beauty Solomon is saying I can see with my eyes 
I can see everything that life has to offer, and my eyes aren't satisfied. I can hear what this life has to give, and my ears are not filled. My eye is not satisfied with seeing. The ear is not filled with hearing. Life is unsatisfying. And so the three themes that come out of this chapter from the very first couple of verses are vanity. Watch this. Vanity, no gain, and life under the sun. Those three themes. Vanity, no gain, and life under the sun. So we continue to ask, where is the beauty? And we need to define that first word, vanity. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. This word is used five times in, the, in verse 2. Notice that. Five times. The word is used 30 times in the whole book of Ecclesiastes. It's an important word. The word is hebel in the Hebrew, hebel. And it means, well, it's translated vanity, but it means vapor or mist or breath. And the idea is, that's literal, it's vapor, it's this mist. But the, the, the figurative definition would be life is elusive. It's unsubstantial. It's like a, ch- he says this later, it's like a chasing after the wind. I try to grasp it and I can't grab onto it. It's empty. There's this meaningless, fleeting, temporary, without substance, without gain. That's what Solomon is saying. And often this word hebel or vanity is followed with a striving after the wind. I just can't capture life. The other phrase is under the sun. Verse 3, what does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Uh, this phrase is also repeated 30 times in, or a variation of it. It could be under the sun or under heaven, and this is life. So that's figurative for life. This is the life that you and I live, life under the sun, life under heaven, your life, my life. And there are two ways that interpreters have talked about this phrase. They're trying to think, what is, what is Solomon really getting at as we think of life under the sun? And there's two ways to think about it. The first way is life without God. This is life under the sun is life from a secular viewpoint, life divorced from faith, life divorced from knowing God. It's a life that looks at only the here and the now. My experience right now, what I experience, what I can see. And I think in many ways, this way to interpret life under the sun makes sense. I mean, we have every reason to be cynical, to be jaded. If if this is all there is in life, it would seem that the brokenness outweighs the beauty This life is full of impression, it's full of injustice, it's fleeting, and it does seem that it doesn't amount to much. I told you last night that seasons come and seasons go, you're young, life is all ahead of you, and as seasons go in your life, you'll finish college, you'll move on to other parts of life. 
And it would seem that life moves quickly. It's fleeting. And you sometimes wonder, what does all of this amount to? But that's a perspective, on the one hand, of life apart from God. Life divorced from God. I think another way to think about it, maybe a better way, this is the way I interpret Ecclesiastes. Not everybody does. This is the way I approach Ecclesiastes is that life under the sun is actually the life that God Himself has woven in to life. Life under the sun. This, the very fabric of our experience and our existence, this seemingly futility, has actually been woven into life by God Himself because of sin, because we live in a broken world. Look at, again, look at verse 13, chapter 1, verse 13. I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business note that God has given to the children of man. God has given. One author put it this way, the route of escape has not been given due to Adam's sin, due to our own personal sin. We do not get off easy. There are no quick fixes. So we begin with brokenness. We begin with a Genesis 3 world. That's the world that you and I live in. Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve rebelled, sinned against God. This is the world. And so By virtue of Genesis 3, God has woven, I believe, this into the fabric of life. Life under the sun is post-Genesis 3. If you're familiar with Romans 8, it's vexing, it's troubling. Do you remember in Genesis 1 and 2, if you're familiar with your Bibles, God, what was the repeated phrase that God said every time in Genesis 1? It is good. 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 And at the very end, in chapter 1, verse 31, he says, it is very good. It's chapter 1, verse 31. You get to chapter 3, and you get to the rebellion of the garden. The very good of Genesis 1 and 2 has been replaced by the vanity of vanities of Ecclesiastes 1. Are you following this? This is what's been woven in. It's the direct promise of death in Genesis chapter 2. The Lord commands the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree, every tree in the garden, but of the one tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. Why? For in the day you eat of it, you will die. And so death has been woven in to the fabric of life. Go to, go, take your Bibles. Go back to Genesis chapter 3. I want you to see this. Genesis 3, this is after the fall, this is part of the curse, chapter 3 and verse 17, Genesis 3 says to Adam, because you listened to the voice of your wife, you've eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground because of you, in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, this is verse 18 now. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. Verse 19, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread 
till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are of dust, and to dust you shall return. Thorns and thistles. You work and you work, and at the end of the day, you work again, and it feels like you're not getting anywhere. The work that you do and the classes that you have, the work that you do and the jobs that you have is thorns and thistles. It's struggle and frustration. Where is the beauty? God has woven this in. It's the groaning of creation of Romans chapter 8. The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. God subjected the creation to futility. Not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. We're we're living in a world that groans under the weight of sin. The whole, we know, verse 21, chapter 8, or chapter 8 of Romans, verse 22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Brokenness. Life under the sun is the broken world that we live in, broken by sin and rebellion against God. And maybe you've experienced pain and bitter disappointment. Maybe you're angry at life. Maybe you're not angry. Maybe you're just a cynic. You're jaded. Maybe you're not a cynic. Maybe you just don't care. You're apathetic. You don't see the point of any of it. You haven't found any gain or advantage. You're keenly aware of the frustrations of life. Maybe you're not apathetic. Maybe you're not cynic. Maybe you're not jaded. Maybe you're anxious. You don't know what the future holds. You don't know how life fits together. You're constantly under a cloud. Maybe there's heaviness. Maybe there's heaviness to your world and to your life. And you're experiencing what the Puritans call a dark night of the soul. It's a good question that Dave asked us to think about last night. Where are you? Where does God have you right now? Where are you in in the pain that you experience and what do you do about it? We all try to manage it in some way. And because of our natures, we typically try to manage it in unbiblical ways. Do you numb the pain? Do you avoid the pain? Do you medicate the pain? Do you pursue pleasure to avoid the pain or to forget about the frustrations? Well, let's see what Solomon did. Go back to Ecclesiastes. You might be in Genesis there. Go to Ecclesiastes. We're in chapter 2 now. Chapter 1 surveys the problem. Solomon sees all of life, and it's just this running and, and never filling. It's, it's, it's movement and unsatisfying. What does Solomon do? Chapter 2. 
Solomon will now begin to test his heart. Now, we live from our hearts. Jesus tells us this, that we live from our hearts. And so Solomon is going to test his heart. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. I said to my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? And I searched my heart, how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold of folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. We are wired to see beauty. Solomon is looking for it. Do you see what he says? He actually says it twice. You can't quite see it in the English. But he says it at the end of verse 1. He says, enjoy yourself. The word is actually literally translated, see good. See good. Look, he says it at the end of verse, or the kind of at the middle of verse 3 as well. And to, see, and to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good. Do you see that? So he says it twice in these two verses. I want to see good. I see this world around me and I want to see good. We're wired for beauty, to desire beauty. It's because we're image bearers. We've been made in the image of God. I'm going to talk a lot more about that as the week goes along. God loves beauty. God created beauty. We see this in Genesis. We talked about that, the very good, the very good that was said. And so Solomon's saying, where's the beauty? I can't see it, so I'm going to manufacture it. I'm going to pursue it. I'm going to try to find my own version of it, pleasure and happiness, till I might see what was good for these few days that I have on earth. Solomon's on a quest for the good. He's on a quest for beauty. He's on a quest for pleasure. He's looking for something, and he's trying to recover Eden. There's a book that I'm going to quote from here in a minute called Recovering Eden. That's what Ecclesiastes is. Eden, paradise. And Solomon is going back. He's trying to find Eden, recover Eden. Eden. So I'm going to run to pleasure. Let's read what he does. So verse 4, chapter 2, verse 4, I made great works. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pursue pleasure. I'm going to make life happy. And so I built houses and I planted vineyards for myself and I made myself gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees. I made pools from which to water the forest. I bought male and female slaves. Slaves were born in my house. I had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me. Go back and read Solomon's life in, King, in the book of Kings. It's amazing the amount of wealth that he had. The queen of Sheba comes to Solomon's kingdom, and her breath is taken away by the amount of wealth and glory that Solomon's kingdom has. That's what he's, what he's saying here. 
I gathered for myself silver, verse 8, and gold, the treasure of kings, province and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and concubines, many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. And so I became great, and I surpassed all those who were before me. Look at verse 10. I, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. I pursued whatever I wanted for pleasure. I kept nothing from myself. And my, I found pleasure in my toil, and this was re- reward from all my toil. So he also worked hard. There were no limits to his wealth. There were no limits to his possessions, no limits to the wine, no limits to the women, vineyards, gardens, parks, pools, servants, silver, gold. I kept my heart from no pleasure. He worked hard to amass this fortune. And look what he says, verse 11, and I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I expanded, and behold... All was vanity and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained. Nothing to be gained. And so I'm going to pursue work. I'm going to pursue wisdom. Maybe he, and, and he, he pursues pleasure on the one hand, but then he said, well, well maybe I should just pursue wisdom, not, not necessarily pleasure. Maybe I should pursue work not necessarily pleasure, have more of a stoic life. I could run to pleasure or I could run from pleasure. And look at his response at the end of, well, let's drop down to, um, uh, look, at, look at verse uh, 12. So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the kings? Only what has already been done. And then I saw that there was more gain in wisdom than in folly, and there's more gain in light than in darkness. So it's good to pursue wisdom. Maybe I'll pursue wisdom. There's more gain in wisdom than in folly. And yet I perceived, in the middle of verse 14, that the same event happens to all of them. Everybody dies in the end. doesn't matter if you're a wise man or a fool. Everybody dies. Verse 15, I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me. Why, why have I been so wise? So look at verse 17. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. It's a vanity and a striving after the wind. So I pursue pleasure. I pursue wisdom. I'm not finding anything. Maybe I should pursue work. Verse 18, I hated all my toil. Well, I hated my work which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. Have you ever, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, you might not be old enough to have had to do this yet, trained your replacement at work? You have to train your replacement? Like I've put all this work into this, and they're gonna, I'm going to train my replacement so that I can walk away, and this person can do what I've been doing? That's what he's saying right here. Who knows whether he will be wise or a fool? I don't know if this person is going to do a better job than me or not. No advantage. Solomon had it all. All the wisdom, all the pleasures of this world. And his threefold conclusion is this. 
Chapter 2, verse 11, there's nothing to be gained. Chapter 2, verse 17, I hated life. Some of you might be there right now. The bitterness, the hurt, some of you have been deeply hurt. And you've tried these things that Solomon has tried. How are you testing your heart? Solomon said, I'm going to test my heart. How are you testing your heart? When life is disappointing or confusing or unfair, where do you run? It's all the, all the manner of things that you can run to, right? Alcohol, video games, pornography, food, shopping, social media. You run to pleasure or do you run from pleasure? You pour yourself into work and you find that you immerse yourself in work or in pursuing wisdom and you find that these are empty and meaningless as well. Where is the beauty? It's a question. Are you feeling it? Can I encourage you this morning that there is a better way? There is a way that is more satisfying than pursuing the fleeting pleasures of life. Solomon would say this, if you read, read the book, Solomon would say this, King David, his dad, would say this, read the Psalms. And I think one thing that we have to remind ourselves as we come to the book of Ecclesiastes is that the book of Ecclesiastes is not the last word. There is hope. There is hope. There is good news, but the good news often begins with the brokenness. Beauty is coming, but it begins with a recognition of where we are this side of heaven. I said that this word vanity is used 30 times in the book, but there's another word that's used even more. And that word is tov, which means good, better, pleasant. And that tells me something. It tells me even when Solomon is talking about hard things, difficult circumstances, that there's something more that's pleasing and better and good. Remember what he said at the beginning of chapter 2. I want to see the good. I want to I look out. I want to look for the good in this world. And the next time we actually come to that word, after all of this pursuit of pleasure that's meaningless, is in chapter 2, verse 24. I want you to go there. This is where we begin to see hope. This is where we begin to see beauty. Chapter 2, verse 24. There is nothing better 
That's significant. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. Verse 25, for apart from him who can eat or who can have enjoyment. Do you see it? The very thing that he was looking for at the beginning of chapter 2, he's now talking about here at the end. I want to see the good. I want to find pleasure. I want to see beauty. There is nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment. There it is. There it is. Where? Eat and drink? Find enjoyment in his toil? What? Wait, what? (laughs) This is what it is? Eat, drink, work? There's got to be more. Look what he says at the end of verse 24. This I saw is from the hand of God. This is the beginning of the good news of Ecclesiastes. This is the beginning of the good news of life under the sun. The good, and here's, if I can get you to think about this all week, that if we can begin to get God's perspective on what good is, God's perspective on what good is, not my perspective, not the culture's perspective, not your friend's perspective, not social media's, the influencers, whatever. I want to know what God says is good. I want to know what God says is beautiful. If I can help you, I want you to see that. Here is the good, beginning right here in verse 24. Solomon recognizes that God's sovereign hand is at work in his life to the extent that God, or that good, listen to this, good, here's here's our beginning definition already, good is what God has given in simple, ordinary gifts. What are those? Of food and drink and work. Really? Yes. This is what I mean. We need to begin to form our understanding of beauty and good in how God defines beauty and good. So the key is that it's from the hand of God. I want you to picture that this week. That God's hand is giving you something for your good. And sometimes you hear about, I don't know if you've ever heard this phrase, your lot in life. Have you heard this phrase? This is your lot in life? You heard this? Yeah? Okay. There are two things that are from the hand of God. All that you have in life, your lot in life, your portion. Sometimes we sing about God is my portion. and He's given me my portion. The ordinary blessings of life, the portion that He's given you, the food, the drink, the work, the friends, the possessions that you have, this is your lot. This is from the hand of God. Can you receive? And then specifically, if you look at verse 25, this is kind of, that was implied. 
what from the hand of God, but specifically, verse 25, for apart from Him, for apart from Him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? You know what a rhetorical question is, right? It has the answer in it. No one. No one can enjoy these things apart from God. Truly. The ability to enjoy ordinary things. This is the message. This is part of the message of Ecclesiastes. The food and the drink and the friends and your lot in life, the ability to actually find enjoyment in that cannot be found apart from God. That's why I said at the beginning. A right relationship with God is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. To have a right understanding of life and reality is to be aligned properly with God, in relationship with God. Because apart from Him, I cannot enjoy these things. I cannot find beauty, true beauty. I can manufacture it like Solomon, but what's his conclusion? What's your conclusion? What have you experienced? It's just like a chasing after the wind. So a person can have all the stuff in the world. From an outsider's perspective, they live a beautiful life. But they can't enjoy it. Why? Because God withholds that joy. They can't derive actual pleasure from it. And Solomon is saying that there is nothing better, listen, there's nothing better than being able to recognize, to see the good that God is offering by His kind hand. I want to read, uh, just, I told you, I told you I wanted to uh, read just a little bit. It's from this book, Re uh, Recovering Eden. And, it, and it just picking up on this idea of our lot in life and how we respond to our lot in life. When the preacher says this is his lot, he does not highlight our miserable circumstances under the sun. He's already done that. Okay, that's what chapter 1, chapter 2. So now he takes our eyes off of those difficulties and he asks us, listen, instead to look at our portion, at our lot, the fact that the life of every human being consists mainly of this. We've been given a place to be, Manhattan, Lawrence, Pittsburgh. I'm forgetting all the other universities. <laughs> Pratt. I'm from Pratt, by the way. That's my hometown. We've been given a place to be, some things to do, a need for sustenance, and a people to share this with. Dave talked about, prayed about this morning, fellowship, our time with fellowship. And God originates these gifts. God is present with these gifts. So in this light, Solomon is saying this. He's talking about two different kinds of people under the sun. Okay? Everybody in this room, two different kinds of people. The first one is learning to see that each aspect of his lot as a gift that indicates God's good character an active presence toward Him. Are you starting to see, can I see, this is God's hand in my life, 
God is good. I trust His character. He's never failed me. And I'm beginning to see that this is what God has offered me, a time and a place, some things to do, some people to live with, some food to eat, some simple pleasures. And in contrast, the second kind of person has his lot but does not see God in it. This is the one who uses what he has and makes his life with it, what Solomon was doing at the beginning of chapter 2, but he derives no present empowerment from God to enjoy it. His is a godless happiness in his life. Sad indeed. God's gift is not recognized. God's presence is not sought in the gift. You just sang about that at the beginning. Therefore, the power to accept our lot, this is, this is the challenge of life. Let me tell you this. It's not just in college. It's the rest of your life. The challenge to accept what God has put before you does not refer to numb resignation. Well, I guess that's it. Numb resignation or pointless apathy. The preacher is not telling us, well, death is coming, therefore stop and smell the roses as long as you can. This is it. Acceptance rather involves our alertness to God's presence among the gifts He has given us and the sense of His joy that He intends to provide us through our visiting with Him among them under the sun. Solomon is not telling us, hey, just call the bad things in your life good, call the evil that's happened to you good. That's not what he's saying. We still call evil things evil, bad things bad. Ecclesiastes does not demand that we change our definition and we call black white. We call good bad and bad good. Have you read, uh, some of you might have read C.S. Lewis in The Problem of Pain? Maybe. But we need to adjust our definition, and this I'm going to end with this. We've talked about, and I encourage you with this, to adjust our definition of beauty, adjust our definition of good. We have all of these understandings of good, what I want, what I, what I need, what I think I need in life. And it's kind of like my definition of good needs to be properly aligned with God's definition of good as a circle. And C.S. Lewis does this in his book on the problem of pain, and he says this, it's like a child drawing a circle. And you know how a child draws a circle? It's wobbly, it's crooked, and it's not a circle, right? But it, it has some semblance of it. It's not a square. It's not a triangle. It's, it's this wobbly, crooked, scribbly circle, right? What's God's definition of good? It's a perfect circle perfect circle. And so we're not told to completely change our definition of good, to completely change our definition of beauty, but it's to mold that circle and to see that what I want really is this over here, God's definition of good. Do you understand that? Can you see that? So this, your and my definition of good needs to align with God's definition our imperfectly, and you'll do this when you get to be parents, 
You'll, you'll take your big hand and you'll put it on your child's little hand as they draw and you'll help them draw that circle. And that's what we need is God to guide our hand as we're drawing that circle. That your imperfectly drawn circle, my imperfectly drawn circle needs to be guided by the hand of God to make a perfect circle. And this is the beginning of wisdom. To think God's thoughts after Him. To think God's definitions after Him. To pursue beauty in the way God has provided it. To be able to see beauty when you're surrounded by brokenness. You can't do it. You can't see it on your own. You can't manufacture it. Solomon tried it. You've tried it. You failed. I've failed. And the remedy to all of this is the gospel. And so we're going to talk about that tonight. I want you to think about these things as we think about brokenness um, and where that would bring us to finding true beauty in light of the gospel. So let me pray for you. Um, Invite the worship team back up here and uh, let me pray as we close in considering brokenness. Our Father, we thank you for the book of Ecclesiastes. Thank you that um, you give us truth. Father, I pray for these in our midst who have tried to pursue beauty and pleasure apart from you, who are trying to deal with their brokenness under the sun apart from you. And Father, I pray that we begin to pursue beauty and pleasure in light of Christ in light of the gospel, in light of the kind and good fatherly hand of God and what He has provided in simple, ordinary pleasures. So I pray for these students now as we turn our hearts again to worship, pray as we meditate on this throughout the day, we return tonight, consider the gospel. Lord, work in our midst, I pray. Cause us to love you and to see you more clearly. We pray in Jesus' name.